Good to see you here today. I'm glad you're here with us. If you're visiting with us, we're extremely glad that you've joined us this uh, afternoon. And uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Jason. We'd love uh, to get to know you after the service if you have time to introduce yourself. And more importantly, though, you're surrounded by an amazing church family that we call Solid Rock. And I consider it an honor just to be a part of this church and a part of what God is doing here. So if you're visiting with us, I hope you feel welcome. I hope you've already felt like uh, this is home. We're glad that you're here. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 6 in just a moment. We're going to start in Acts 6 and end in Acts chapter 7. Uh, again, if you're visiting with us or haven't been here in a few weeks, we are going through the book of Acts as a church. Uh, we've made it to Acts chapter 6, and, uh, and that's where we'll get started in just a moment. If you didn't bring a Bible and you want to follow along, we put Bibles under the seats around you. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, that's our free gift to you. We want you to go home with a copy of God's Word, so feel free. We mean it. Write your name in it. Take it home. That's your Bible now. Um, so just a couple of things I want to announce before we get ready to, to go in Act 6. Um, so much like my home, here at the church, when things come up that need to be addressed, I just put them on the list. Anybody else do that at your house? And so you've just got this reoccurring long list of things to do. We call it a to-do list, but what we really mean is it's a not-to-do list because I don't want to do it right now. So we put things off, we put it on the list. Um, here at the church, we do the same thing. As things come up, things need to be addressed, we put them on the list. And so what we do is we stop a couple times a year, get together on like a Saturday morning, and we try to knock out as much of that list as we can. And so we're going to do that next Saturday. We're going to have a work day um, from 8 a.m. to noon. And uh, there are a variety of different ways that, that you could help out. Anything from uh, touch-up paint, uh, changing light bulbs, minor electrical. Uh, we may even dig up a couple of stumps uh, outside. So we've got a lot of different things to do, some throwing things, some things in the dumpster, some cleaning up. And so um, there are a variety of different ways that you could serve if you, if you have time and can pitch in on that. You don't have to be a member here. Anybody is welcome to come be a part of next Saturday. 8 a.m. Uh, Ken Forsyth, who just prayed, one of our elders, will be leading that. So if you have specific questions, you could follow up with him and ask. Um, but we'll pro be providing everything that is needed for the work, including tools. So if you could just show up and help out, that'd be great. Um, that'll be next, this coming Saturday. Uh, I think it's the 12th, 8 a.m. to noon. All right, Acts chapter 6. So here's where we've been so far. Um, the church has um, gone from... 120 Christians to well over 5,000 in just a matter of a few weeks, okay? Church has exploded. And last week, what we saw is that along with this growth, two things have happened. Trouble on the outside and trouble within. So trouble on the outside is, uh, is what we call persecution. The church is meeting resistance from religious leaders, political leaders, uh, and, and, the, and these uh, these who stand in opposition to the church are beginning to, to press back and cause problems in the form of persecution. The more the church grows, the hotter the heat of persecution seems to become. We're going to see it. Uh, we're going to see it turned up today uh, to the all-time point of somebody dying for following Jesus. So so far, um, Peter and John got arrested for preaching Jesus, and they were slapped on the wrist, threatened, released. Uh, then the next. Uh, next scene we have, the, the 12, 12 apostles are all arrested, questioned, and then flogged, beaten. So not just like a spanking on the behind, but like grown men beaten, threatened, and released. But nobody's died yet. Today we're going to encounter the first martyr of the church. 
And in addition to that, what we saw last week is that as the church explodes on the inside, these 12 guys, these 12 apostles, aren't able to cover all the bases. But that's okay because the Spirit of God has a plan. He's <laughs> gifted men and women to serve. And so what they do is this. Um, they decide, you know what, let's take a step back. Let's focus on what we've been called to do, to preach, to teach, to, to minister through prayer, and let's select some men who are full of the spirit and wisdom to jump in and help serve and cover, cover the ministry duties. And so uh, we see that, that, that from among uh, these seven men, there's one guy in particular by the name of Stephen who we're going to be talking about today. So Stephen, really what we know about Stephen is this. He has encountered uh, the church. He has heard this gospel news about faith in Jesus that leads to forgiveness of sins and salvation. He's responded in faith. And so God has done this powerful work in Stephen to the point where he's now full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. And when a need arises in the church, he says, I'll help with that. And that's all we know about Stephen. Full of the Spirit, believes in Jesus, and this need has arisen in the church, which is the equivalent of waiting tables. He said, yeah, I'll pitch in. I'll help there. And that's all we know about Stephen. So we're going to pick up today the story of Stephen. Now he's out in the streets of Jerusalem discussing his faith in Jesus with others. And he's going to then now be the next one who's arrested. And so we're going to pick this up in verse 8 of Acts 6. Now we're going to start in Acts 6. Then we're going to land in Acts 7. Uh, but let's start in verse 8 of Acts 6. And Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So in this very first verse, we're reminded of one of the primary themes of the book of Acts. And, that, and here's the theme that these individual people, as they encounter the great grace of Jesus, he radically transforms their hearts, their lives, and then fills them with his spirit in a very powerful way. And this is true of Stephen, Okay. And so he is full of grace and power. God is working through him in these wonders and signs. Verse 9, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicilia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. So you get the scene. He's in the public, probably out in the street or in a market area. He's discussing with these people about his faith in Jesus, and they begin to dispute with him. And then verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, once again, Stephen hasn't been to the apostles' seminary. He wasn't one of the original 12 disciples. Um, this is simply a man who's encountered Jesus been filled with the Spirit now, and he's encountered opposition, and God's Spirit moving through him in such a way that those who are arguing with him, they can't win. They're silenced. Now, let me, let me take a minute to revisit um, the big picture of this sermon series that we're in. Um, what we're calling this sermon series is Acts, the Unstoppable Church. 
Now, what we don't mean by that is because these Christians were super cool, super spiritual, Jesus-loving men and women, that they were therefore unstoppable. What we mean is that scene after scene, story after story, as the narrative of Acts unfolds, it is clear that it's God's spirit that is empowering these believers, and that is therefore the reason why it's unstoppable. Matter of fact, one of the religious leaders who, who stands in opposition to the church, we saw this last week, said to the other, his other religious cronies, um, guys, if this is of man, it's going to fall apart. However, if this is of God, there's nothing we can do to stop it. And so as we encounter this story of Stephen, Luke, who's the one writing this story, wants us to make no mistake about it. It's God's spirit in Stephen that's empowering him in this moment. And so he's engaging in dialogue with uh, these Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those from Sicilia and Asia. And in the way the spirit's moving through him, they're being silenced. Okay? And this is going to irritate them. Now look at verse 611 with me. Acts 611. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So here's what's happening now. Persecution up until this point was primarily a reaction. Okay, Those who had arrested Jesus, put him on trial, and ultimately put him to death are now starting to deal with some of his followers. With Peter and John, they see him teaching in the temple, and they're like, what do we do? I don't know. Let's just arrest them. Oh, well, now we got him arrested, what are we going to do? I don't know. Let's just threaten them, and then let's let them go. A few chapters later, that didn't work. I don't, what are we going to do? I don't know. Let's, let's just arrest all 12 of them. Let's go ahead and beat them, and, for, and then we'll release them and see if that works. And so that's what they do. Now what we're beginning to see is a very intentional scheme begin to unfold. What happened to Jesus, right? So early in Jesus' ministry, he would, he would encounter opposition. Early on, right, it was somewhat spontaneous. He would deal with it on the fly. But as Jesus grew more and more popular and got closer and closer to the cross, that opposition became more and more intentional. They begin to try to corner Jesus with deep theological questions, right? They, they bring Jesus the question, what's the greatest commandment? Well, that, that whole scene was the religious leaders trying to corner Jesus and catch him off guard. How about the woman caught in adultery? They bring her before Jesus. This woman caught in adultery. Say, Jesus, the law of Moses commands that we put her to death by stoning her. What do you say? They didn't give a rip about this woman, what happened to her. They were trying to catch Jesus off guard, corner him, and cause him to stumble in front of his people. And one, one after another, Jesus just, boom, knocks him out of the park. But as he gets closer and closer to the cross, this scheme, this behind-the-scenes scheme and plot begins to develop and become more intentional. So the same thing is beginning to happen now for the church. And their plan is this. Well, we can't, we can't refute them in dialogue, so let's plant lies. Let's start rumors that Stephen is speaking blasphemy against Moses and God. That's what we did with Jesus, right? We tried him and convicted him for blasphemy. Now let's do the same thing. Now, simultaneously, the religious crew here, the Jews who were leading the, 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 uh, in the synagogues and temples at this time, they're already angry with these Jesus followers. Now they start catching wind of these rumors. Are you kidding me? Stephen, 
was speaking blasphemy against Moses and God. So now the next thing we're going to see is this begins to fuel the fire. Verse 12, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And here's what they do. They came upon him, Stephen, seized him and brought him before the council. Verse 13, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, we, we, we see that scheme unfolding, but there's some distinct parallels with what's happening to Stephen with what happened to Jesus. They're taking truths and twisting them into half-truths and spinning these lies into false accusations. And one of their accusations is what? This Jesus that he's preaching, and they're probably sitting in the temple or in the courts of the temple, said he was going to tear this place down. Well, what did Jesus actually say? I will destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. So that's kind of true, but what did he mean? So throughout the Old Testament... God, through his people, had them establish a temple. And the purpose of the temple was to set forth a place where the people could have access to the presence of God through a series of rituals and sacrifices and offerings that the chief priest, only one person, could go in and have access to the Holy of Holies, encounter God's presence, and then come out before the people. Now, it wasn't unfettered access to God's presence. It wasn't, right, come and go, your, your right presence. You had to go through a certain strategic path to get there. And so what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to destroy that system. I'm going to completely destroy and tear down that system of the temple. And, and we see at the cross what happens at Jesus' death. The temple curtain is torn from top to bottom, not letting God out of the temple, but, but showing what? That we have now been given unfettered access to God. And, and when Jesus said, I'll rebuild it, what was he talking about? He was talking about establishing a new temple in you and me. That God's spirit would now dwell in those who believe. See, here's what had happened, and we're going to see this play out today. For, the, for those who were followers of God, they had built this temple, um, and they had begun to worship God. Over time, they do what all of us tend to do. They tried to micromanage and fit God into a system that they could control. And so what started as an access point to God's holiness, not the fullness of who he is, but just a, just a drop in the bucket of his presence at the Holy of Holies, right, over time morphed into this idea that we've got God captured. God lives in this box, he lives in this holy of holies. This is where God lives, and we right? And so over time, then God began in their minds to become subject to them. And guess what? Everything else about their religion followed suit. They morphed it, they twisted it, and changed it to the point where they could manage it and control it. It's one of the big beefs that Jesus has with the religious leaders. And so Jesus didn't say, I'm coming to abolish the law of Moses. He said, what? I'm actually coming to fulfill it. So again, another half-truth here. And so all these disciples are doing is they're explaining what Jesus meant. He's going to tear down this system. He's going to replace it with a better system. He's going to fulfill this covenant and replace it with a better covenant. 
that, that, that through faith in Jesus, every believer could have access to the presence of God and the new temple would be the hearts of believers. And so they're spinning this into half-truths and rumors and lies, ultimately trying to bring a conviction against Stephen that he is blaspheming God. And he never ceases to talk this way. Now, here's what's going to happen next. They're going to they're basically turn it over to Stephen and say, what say you? How do you respond to this? And this is where chapter 7 begins. And so for the first 40, 50 verses of chapter 7, Stephen is preaching an amazing sermon. I would put it forth as one of the, the most comprehensive sermons recorded in the book of Acts. Starting in the book of Genesis, he begins to, to talk about God's plan through Abraham, and he shifts and drifts all the way to the book of Exodus and talks about God uses Moses, and, and then he, he, he ends up talking about even like Joshua. And so ultimately what he's saying is he's explaining this idea of the temple. And look, we're going to look at where he lands his sermon in verse 48. So after just blowing it up in this amazing sermon, and keep in mind, we've got no uh, prior knowledge that Stephen has ever preached before. Clearly the work of God through him. Look at where he lands this sermon in verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And so he lands with almost a hint of sarcasm and irony here as he quotes the Old Testament scriptures. And he's calling out what? You guys, you religious leaders have built this religious system. You're also precious religious system. And at the center of your religious system is this temple that you control and you manage and you think that somehow you got God figured out and you got him in a box. But, but here's the reality of it. God doesn't live in your temple. God lives in the heavens. He makes the earth his footstool. The very stones that make up your buildings, God says, I created those. Why would you for one second think that you could contain me in a box made out of stuff that I made? You see how... Stephen's just tearing down their whole religious system right here. In verse 51, he, he lands here with a pretty harsh word. He says, you stiff-necked people. Now, this is a pretty, pretty harsh accusation. And it, it almost sounds like a neck injury. What he's describing is a condition of the heart. When you become so arrogant and prideful and focused on being right that you're unable to look to the right or the left to see that you just might be wrong. Prideful arrogance. He's saying you guys have become so tunnel visioned, right? So focused on this religion you can manipulate and control and, and essentially you're the God of this religion that you're unable to see past yourselves that you're wrong. You've become stiff necked. But not only that, look at what he says. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in the heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so you do. Here's what he's talking about. 
He's talking about how the gospel works. He's talking about even his own experience. See, Stephen wasn't one of the original 12. He has come to know Jesus through faith. At some point he heard, maybe he was there when Peter preached in Acts 2, and he has heard with his ears the gospel truths that God loves you despite your sin. God wants to forgive you despite your rebellion. God accepts you, right, despite the reality that you deserve to be rejected. God says, I want to accept you. These amazing gospel truths have, have come to Stephen's ears and penetrated his heart. And this is the place where God's spirit stirs in us, opening up our hearts to believe these truths that transform us, that save us, that bring forgiveness and eternal life. And he's using this idea of, of circumcision, which was a mark of being one of God's. And he's saying, listen, the problem is your hearts are uncircumcised. And not only that, your ears are uncircumcised. You don't even want to hear about the goodness of God because the goodness of God competes with your very system of religion. Your religion doesn't leave room for God to be good, loving, merciful, forgiving. Your system of religion doesn't leave room for God to be a loving father. So your hearts are hard, your necks are stiff, your ears are uncircumcised. You can't even hear truth. Matter of fact, in just a minute, they're going to cover their ears. They're going to actually literally cover their ears at what they hear him saying. And ultimately, what he's saying is you continue to resist the Holy Spirit. So rather than letting the Holy Spirit in to stir these deep gospel truths and produce salvation and redemption and healing and acceptance and love, rather than letting those in, you stiff arm the Holy Spirit and you don't let him in. You do the same things your fathers did. Now, as you can imagine, this didn't go over very well. In verse 54, we read this, that when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Now, in the original Greek language, this, this phrase is enraged in the heart, cardia. And it's a similar phrase that we heard in Acts chapter 2. So after Peter preaches in Acts 2, we read that the, the hearers that heard this beautiful message were cut to the heart. It's a similar phrase, but instead of being cut to the heart where the heart is open, they're enraged in the heart. And so rather than re responding to the gospel message with humility and acceptance, they're rejecting it, they're stiff-arming it, and they are enraged in their heart to the extent that they're grinding their teeth at Stephen. Now, this would be a good place um, to stop for just a moment and acknowledge what Stephen is up against. Make no mistake about it, Stephen knew full well what was at risk here. Stephen knew full well that for a conviction of blasphemy would end in execution. It happened to Jesus. It had probably happened to other men and possibly even women that he has known in his lifetime. This was not a new practice for the Romans was in a new practice for the Hebrews to put somebody to death for blasphemy. Stoning, right, was not something new. They knew that this was something that, that would, could possibly take place if they were convicted. Stephen knew full well what he was facing in this moment. So far, his comrades had been, had been threatened and released and then, and then arrested again and then beaten and released. So he knew at the very least, this could cost me some severe punishment. I may get beaten here. 
this could possibly end in my death. Verse 55 starts with, but he. Now, I think that's a significant but he, because we would expect something right here, right? We would expect they ground their teeth at him, and he shrunk back in fear. They ground their teeth at him, and he changed his story. They ground their teeth at him, and he tried to escape. The but he is there to show us that instead of doing what we might naturally expect him to do, he did something else. But he. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven. Okay, so he's taken his gaze off of these this angry mob, rather than focusing on where the danger is, he's looking at where his affections lie. He gazes up into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, I don't know if you caught it. There's something about what we just read that is significant. Outside of this story, when we encounter these visions of Jesus in heaven, he's always seated at the right hand of God. But we're going to see it twice in this story. Jesus has stood to his feet. Whatever is going on with Stephen on the ground, Jesus has chosen to reveal himself to Stephen as Stephen gazed up into heaven and focused where his affections were rather than on where the dangers were. And Jesus is honoring that and he's showing himself to Stephen and he's saying, Stephen, I'm standing for you right now. We don't know if it's a posture of defense We don't know fully what Jesus is doing, but he is standing at attention, letting Stephen know what? You are not alone right now. You are not alone. And so as Stephen sees this in verse 56, he can't help but proclaim it. And he he, he proclaims in such a way he's almost like asking everybody else to look up. He says, behold or look. I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. Verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. I want to stop right there. So what's going down right here? Stephen knew exactly what was happening. He just boldly proclaimed what he was seeing. I see my Savior. I see the glory of God. I see the throne. I see God seated in authority, not just over this situation, but over the universe. I see my Savior standing. They cover their ears and they rush him. Okay? It's kind of like an angry mob rush jump on him, seize him, begin dragging him out of the city, which was the custom. For stoning, they would drag an individual out of the city, and they had these pits, these old rock quarries, and places where they would dump garbage, and they would throw the person down in a pit of some sort so they couldn't escape, so they couldn't run around him. They would be an easy target. The rocks that they would throw would gain velocity, and that they could put somebody to death this way. And so they drag Stephen outside of the city, and they stone him. And the witnesses lay down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now they're taking off their garments to make it easier to throw rocks. 
But where they're laying their garments down is a pretty significant place. It's at the feet of a young man named Saul. Just a chapter later, we're going to read about Saul, who's going to rise up as a young, zealous leader against the church, and he's going to lead the charge of persecution against the church. Okay, later he becomes a Christian, right? But in this moment, this is Saul, and he's getting ready. Like, next chapter, he's going to be going to the authorities, to the Roman authorities, asking for a written permission to travel from village to village, kick in doors on houses, and drag out those who proclaim to follow Jesus and to kill them in the streets. This is who Saul is. And he is here right now, this stirring anger against the church. And they're laying their garments down at his feet, picking up rocks, and they're killing Stephen. Now, we haven't seen Stephen's last moment yet. We're about to see that together. And so in verse 59 and 60, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, not only are there some remarkable parallels between how Stephen dies and how even the Lord Jesus died, we see this amazing obedience from Stephen. He's not only following Jesus' example, he's obeying Jesus' teaching. Do you remember what Jesus said about how we're to to react to those who persecute us. In Luke chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus is teaching, he said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And then Jesus exemplifies that on the cross, doesn't he? What does he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We see Stephen following in this same example. Jesus proclaimed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in this particular passage, passage, Stephen is saying what? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, from this point forward in, in history, right, many men and women will give up their lives for the sake of following Jesus. We read about more accounts in the, in the scriptures. We're going to cover more of them in the book of Acts. We know that out of the 12 original disciples, we know that Judas bailed right before the cross. He's the one that turned Jesus in. So now we're down to 11. In Acts chapter 1, they replaced Judas with Matthias. Now we've got 12. Out of those 12, this is what we learned, 11 of those 12 become martyrs for the sake of following Jesus. John is the only one who escapes martyrdom but that's, but that's not void of torture. And they even tried to kill John before exiling him to Patmos. So we know this is going to be a significant thing that happens in the early church. For centuries, as we'll see in just a moment, even into this century, those who follow Jesus are still being called to lay their lives down. Now, here's the truth, though, we need to understand. Dying for Jesus cannot happen unless there is first living for Jesus. Okay? Stephen didn't become a devoted Christ follower in this moment. What was happening here was was the culmination of all that he had believed as he was living. 
right? All that he lived for was now guiding in him in what he died for, which is true of all the men and women who have given their lives for the sake of Christ. I also want to point out something else because, see, I think here's our temptation. We read stories like this and they're inspirational, right? Men and women of great courage, we applaud them, but then we feel a little bit detached because most of us haven't faced such situations. But here's what I want us to realize, that, that it's, it's, the, the, it's, it's the same in this way. The ultimate enemy that Stephen is facing in this moment is not the angry mob. He's saying, Father, forgive them for they know what they, what they do, right? Why? Because they're not the ultimate enemy here. They're acting in ignorance and prideful arrogance and hardness of heart. The ultimate enemy is death. And so whether you face death as a result of your faith or you face death in your faith, right? You still face the same enemy that Stephen faced. Think of it this way. So facing death because of your faith is when somebody says, recant your faith in Jesus or I'm gonna kill you. That's persecution, martyrdom, right? But many millions of men and women have crossed over from this life to the next, facing the enemy of death, dying in the midst of their faith. Have you ever may have been at the bedside of somebody when they breathed their last? Someone who is a follower of Jesus, who faced death just as courageously as Stephen did, knowing what? That Jesus has overcome death. So whether you face death because of your faith or face death in your faith, right? The culmination of that moment will be how you live for Christ. Going forward in church history, we see tons of examples. We know that uh, the Roman Emperor Nero is going to unleash havoc on the Christian church and the Jewish synagogue uh, in the mid-first century. And, uh, and it's going to really fuel the fires of persecution. This goes on for centuries. Um, one example I would share with you is, is a young lady um, by the name of Perpetua. Um, this, this happens in 203. So we're removed from uh, the first century. This is in northern Africa. The, the church has expanded now and gone out, but so has the persecution. And what was customary in this day under Roman rule was to round up Christians and either use them for slaves and or use them for entertainment in the arena. Following in the customs of Nero, oftentimes these Christians were pushed out into the arena into a bloodbath for the entertainment of the Romans. In, in, in 203, Perpetua was arrested with a small group of Christians, both men and women. Uh, Perpetua actually had a son, and uh, her dad was, uh, was not a follower of Jesus. He was, he, was a, he was a pagan, and he would bring Perpetua's son to where she was arrested and let her see her son, uh, exchange, I love you, kiss her son, and then he would take her son back, trying to convince her to recant her faith in Jesus. And he did this over and over again. A perpetual servant was there with her who was also a believer following Jesus. She was eight months pregnant when they were arrested. They waited till after she gave birth, and after she gave birth, she was able to hand her baby over to family members who were not under arrest. And then two days later, Perpetua, her servant, and those who were arrested with her, five of them, Christians, were pushed out into the arena. Church history would tell us that the men died um, at, um, 
by a wild bear and a wild cat and maybe even some wild boars out in the arena. Just kicked out there for the entertainment of the crowd. And Perpetua and the other women were kicked out and they were trampled to death by bulls for their faith in Jesus. Church history is full of stories like this. This is a quote from Perpetua. As she's engaging in dialogue with her dad, he's trying to convince her to to recant her faith in Jesus. She says, it will all happen in the prisoner's dock as God wills. For you may be sure that we are not left to ourselves, but are all in his power. She's saying, Dad, God controls what will happen in the arena, not you and not me. I think of uh, Jim Elliott from the mid-20th century. If you don't know the story, um, Jim Elliott, along with um, several of his seminary friends and their wives, um, decide that God's calling them to an unreached people group in the jungles of Ecuador. And this unreached people group were a very vicious group. They were known to kill outsiders from any tribe, any race. So what they did is they found a safe zone and they set up shop and a place to live and, uh, and as a pilot, they would fly over and engage this tribe with gifts from the air from a safe distance. And they did this for about three years to kind of establish this rapport with the villagers that, hey, we're here for your good. We don't mean any harm. But then the day came on January the, 20, or January the 2nd, 1956. Jim Elliott was 29 years old. He and his comrades landed there on the river and deciding this is time. It's time for us to engage this tribe on foot. And they... They get out of the plane, begin to set up camp. They encounter um, a, a woman from the tribe. She seems very peaceful, and they think, okay, this is going the right way. They, they begin to set up camp, and then hours later, they're ambushed by this tribe and just brutally killed right there on the river. Now, try to imagine their wives. You know, back at, at the headquarters, radio silence, what's going on? What's happening to you? And you might expect all of them to pack up, go home, give up. This was too hard. We we misunderstood God. We underestimated this. But what happens is um, Jim's wife, Elizabeth, she reengages in the mission. And through God's providential hand, encounters a runaway woman from this tribe and leads her to Christ and begins to build a relationship with this tribe and leads them to Christ. If you've seen the movie Into the Spear, Beyond the Splendor, these are two different movies depicting uh, how this story unfolds. And Elizabeth Elliot um, stays the course. Now, her husband Jim dies because of his faith. Elizabeth Elliot will die in her faith, right? Both trusting in Christ and Christ alone. I think of more recent events. Here's a couple of quotes from, from Jim Elliot before we move on. I love this quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, right? Giving of your life, you can't keep it, you can't control it to gain that which we, he cannot lose, his salvation in Christ. He even says this, when it comes time to die, make sure that all you have left to do is die, that you faithfully completed everything on earth God has called you to do. In more recent events, we think of like Columbine, um, this attack in a school where two individuals, um, uh, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, um, burst into a school, um, ultimately angry and want to kill Christians. And several 
Um, several people died that day in Columbine. Well, most notably of the stories was the one of Cassie um, that you may have heard about. Um, Cassie was the one that originally was reportedly the one who said yes. Matter of fact, um, Michael W. Smith wrote a song about that. Um, and she was heralded as this great martyr of the faith who, when questioned, do you believe in Jesus, said yes, was gunned down. But since then, we've actually um, found out more of the story. And it's actually, it's actually, I think, a more powerful story when you actually know kind of the reality of what happened. See, it was actually misunderstood. Um, Cassie wasn't the one reportedly that said yes. Um, we know this because she was underneath a table with another girl who was wounded but lived and said, no, no, she's not the one who said yes. She was the one praying to Jesus out loud. I was right there with her. She was praying to Jesus. The one who said yes, yes was Kathleen or Valine Schnur, and, and she was under a different table. And when Dylan, with the gun, approached her and asked her about her face, she said, yes, I believe in Jesus, and she was gunned down. So we have two examples here, right? Both gunned down for their faith in Jesus. Cassie reportedly just praying to Jesus. Valine was questioned and gunned down for her faith. Now, in just a moment, we're going we're gonna to sing a song that's pretty familiar to us here at Solid Rock. And if you're visiting with us, we'll sing this song from time to time, In Christ Alone. And, and as we sing these amazing lyrics of proclamation of what we believe and that we have truly trusted in Christ alone, I want to do something different today, okay? I want to, first of all, I want to read the last verse of this song. And then, I wanna, then I'm going to let you hear the song from somebody else singing it before we sing it. Here's the last verse of, in Christ, verse of In Christ Alone. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ. I'll stand. I don't know if you know the story of Christina Grimmie. She was a, a voice finalist, fantastic singer, but more importantly, she was a follower of Jesus. and She made it big through her YouTube videos and oftentimes would sing uh, sing about her faith through her YouTube videos. And this past summer, she was gunned down after a concert in Orlando. Um, an obsessed fan, we don't really know his motive, attacks her and guns her down and kills her right there. And, and again, this is an example of somebody maybe who didn't die for their faith, but died in their faith. I want to take a moment just to listen to Christina sing the lyrics of this song in Christ alone. And as you hear the lyrics, I really want us to focus in on the words, and as you hear these words, I want you to think about Stephen. I want you to think about Perpetua. I want you to think about Jim Elliot, Cassie, and Valine. I want you to think about Jesus and the death on the cross that he suffered for us. And then as the song is playing, I'm gonna invite our worship team to come back up, and then we're gonna sing that song together. Um, if you guys are ready, though, let's go ahead and let's play, play this video. This is Christina. In Christ. 
and that we believe he truly controls our destiny. And we've been called not, not just to die for him, but to live for him. And we walk out of here today with our eyes focused on the affections of our heart, Jesus, rather than the dangers and the fears and the struggles of the world around us. Let's pray together. If you wouldn't mind standing with me, and then we'll respond. Father, we thank you for Jesus, that his death on the cross and his resurrection have secured for us not just a power in life, but a power over death. God, that we can truly live with no guilt of sin and no fear of death. God, thank you that our faith is not a, a superstition or a religion made by man, but God, thank you for coming to earth to bridge this gap, to provide for us this relationship with you, the the creator of the universe. God, today we proclaim together that we stand in Christ alone. Father, would you send your spirit into our hearts now as we stand to sing in Jesus' powerful name.